Chapter 4 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum. Written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum. Chapter 4 struggles for a livelihood during this season i made arrangements with mr samuel sherwood of bridgeport to go on an exploring expedition to pittsburgh pennsylvania where we understood there was a fine opening for a lottery office and where we meant to try our fortunes provided the prospects should equal our expectations we went to new york where i had an interview with mr dudley s gregory the principal businessman of Messrs. Yates and McIntyre, who dissuaded me from going to Pittsburgh and offered me the entire lottery agency for the state of Tennessee if I would go to Nashville and open an office. The offer was tempting, but the distance was too far from a certain tailoress in Bethel. As the Pittsburgh trip was given up, Sherwood and I went to Philadelphia for a pleasure excursion and put up at Congress Hall in Chestnut Street, where we lived in much grander style than we had been accustomed to. The array of waiters and display of dishes were far ahead of our former experiences, and for a week we lived in clover. At the end of that time, however, when we concluded to start for home, the amount of our hotel bill astounded us. After paying it and securing tickets for New York, our combined purses showed a balance of but 27 cents. 25 cents of this sum went to the bootblack, and as our breakfast was included in our bill, we secured from the table a few biscuits for our dinner on the way to New York. Arriving in New York, we carried our own baggage to Holt's Hotel. The next morning, Sherwood obtained a couple of dollars from a friend and went to Newark and borrowed fifty dollars from his cousin, Dr. Sherwood, loaning me one-half the sum. After a few days' sojourn in the city, we returned home. During our stay in New York, I derived considerable information from the city managers with regard to the lottery business, and thereafter I bought my tickets directly from the Connecticut lottery managers at what was termed the scheme price, and also established agencies throughout the country, selling considerable quantities of tickets at handsome profits. My uncle, Allenson Taylor, joined me in the business, and, as we sold several prizes, my office came to be considered lucky, and I received orders from all parts of the country. During this time, I kept a close eye upon the attractive tailoress, Charity Hallett, and in the summer of 1829, I asked her hand in marriage. My suit was accepted, and the wedding day was appointed. I, meanwhile, applied myself closely to business, and no one but the parties immediately interested, suspecting that the event was so near at hand. Miss Hallett went to New York in October, ostensibly to visit her uncle, Nathan Beers, who resided at Number 3 Allen Street. I followed in November, pressed by the necessity of purchasing goods for my store, and the evening after my arrival, November 8, 1829, the Reverend Dr. McCauley married us in the presence of sundry friends and relatives of my wife, and I became the husband of one of the best women in the world. In the course of the week, we went back to Bethel and took board in the family where Charity Barnum as Cherry Hallett had previously resided. 
I do not prove or recommend early marriages. The minds of men and women taking so important a step in life should be somewhat matured, and hasty marriages, especially marriages of boys and girls, have been the cause of untold misery in many instances. But although I was only little more than nineteen years old when I was married, I have always felt assured that if I had waited twenty years longer, I could not have found another woman so well suited to my disposition and so admirable and valuable in every character as a wife, a mother, and a friend. My business occupations amply employed nearly all my time, yet so strong was my love of fun that when the opportunity for a practical joke presented itself, I could not resist the temptation. On one occasion I engaged in the character of counsel to conduct a case for an Irish peddler whose complaint was that one of our neighbors had turned him out of his house and had otherwise abused him. The court was just as real as the attorney, no more, and consisted of three judges, one a mason, the second a butcher, and the third an old gentleman of leisure who was an ex-justice of the peace. The constable was of my own appointment and my writ arrested the culprit who had turned my client out of his house and home. The court was convened, but as the culprit did not appear, and as it seemed necessary that my client should get testimonials as to his personal character, the court adjourned nominally for one week, the client consenting to stand treat to cover immediate expenses. I supposed that this was the end of it, but at the time named for the reassembling of the court, a real lawyer from Newtown put in an appearance. He had been engaged by the Irishman to assist me in conducting the case. I saw at once that the joke was likely to prove a sorry one, and immediately notified the members of the court, who were quite as much alarmed as I was at the serious turn the thing had taken. I need not say that while the danger threatened, we all took precious good care to keep out of the way. However, the affair was explained to Mr. Belden, the lawyer, who in turn set forth the matter to the client, but not in such a manner as to soothe the anger so natural under the circumstance. In fact, he advised the Irishman to get out of the place as soon as possible. The Irishman threatened me and my court with prosecution, a threat I really feared he would carry into execution, but which, to the great peace of mind of myself and my companions, he concluded not to follow up. Considering the vexation and annoyance of this Irishman, it was a mitigation to know that he was the party in the wrong and that he really deserved a severer punishment than my practical joke had put upon him. In the winter of 1829-30, my lottery business had so extended that I had branch offices in Danbury, Norwalk, Stamford, and Middletown, as well as agencies in the small villages for thirty miles around Bethel. I had also purchased for my grandfather three acres of land on which I built a house and went to housekeeping. My lottery business, which was with a few large customers, was so arranged that I could safely entrust it to an agent, making it necessary for me to find some other field for my individual enterprise. So I tried my hand as an auctioneer in the book trade. I bought books at the auctions and from dealers and publishers in New York and took them into the country, selling them at auction and doing tolerably well, only at Litchfield, Connecticut, where there was then a law school. At Newburgh, New York, several of my best books were stolen, and I quit the business in disgust. In July 1831, my uncle, 
Allenson Taylor, and myself opened a country store in a building which I had put up in Bethel in the previous spring, and we stocked the yellow store, as it was called, with a full assortment of groceries, hardware, crockery, and notions, but we were not successful in the enterprise, and in October following, I bought out my uncle's interest, and we dissolved partnership. About this time, circumstances partly religious and partly political in their character led me into still another field of enterprise which honorably opened to me that notoriety of which in later life i surely have had a surfeit considering my youth this new enterprise reflected credit upon my ability as well as energy and so i may be excused if i now recur to it with something like pride in a period of strong political excitement I wrote several communications for the Danbury Weekly paper, setting forth what I conceived to be the dangers of a sectarian interference, which was then apparent in political affairs. The publication of these communications was refused, and I accordingly purchased a press and types, and October 19, 1831, I issued the first number of my own paper, The Herald of Freedom. I entered upon the editorship of this journal with all the vigor and vehemence of youth. The boldness with which the paper was conducted soon excited widespread attention and commanded a circulation which extended beyond the immediate locality into nearly every state in the Union. But lacking that experience which induces caution, and without the dread of consequences, I frequently laid myself open to the charge of libel, and three times in three years I was prosecuted. A Danbury butcher, a zealous politician, brought a civil suit against me for accusing him of being a spy in a Democratic caucus. On the first trial, the jury did not agree, but after a second trial, I was fined several hundred dollars. Another libel suit against me was withdrawn and need not be mentioned further. The third was sufficiently important to warrant the following details. A criminal prosecution was brought against me for stating in my paper that a man in Bethel, prominent in the church, had been guilty of taking usury of an orphan boy and for severely commenting on the fact in my editorial columns. When the case came to trial, the truth of my statement was substantially proved by several witnesses and even by the prosecuting party. But the greater the truth the greater the libel and then i had used the term usury instead of extortion or note shaving or some other expression which might have softened the verdict the result was that i was sentenced to pay a fine of one hundred dollars and to be imprisoned in the common jail for sixty days the most comfortable provision was made for me in danbury jail my room was papered and carpeted i lived well i was overwhelmed with the constant visits of my friends I edited my paper as usual and received large accessions to my subscription list, and at the end of my sixty days term, the event was celebrated by a large concourse of people from the surrounding country. The courtroom in which I was convicted was the scene of the celebration. An ode, written for the occasion, was sung. An eloquent oration on the freedom of the press was delivered, and several hundred gentlemen afterwards partook of a sumptuous dinner followed by appropriate toasts and speeches then came the triumphant part of the ceremonial which was reported in my paper of december twelfth eighteen thirty two as follows p t barnum and the band of music took their seats in a coach drawn by six horses 
which had been prepared for the occasion. The coach was preceded by forty horsemen and a marshal bearing the national standard. Immediately in the rear of the coach was the carriage of the orator and the president of the day, followed by the committee of arrangements and sixty carriages of citizens, which joined in escorting the editor to his home in Bethel. When the procession commenced its march amidst the roar of cannon, three cheers were given by several hundred citizens who did not join in the procession. The band of music continued to play a variety of national airs until their arrival in Bethel, a distance of three miles, when they struck up the beautiful and appropriate tune of Home Sweet Home. After giving three hearty cheers, the procession returned to Danbury. The utmost harmony and unanimity of feeling prevailed throughout the day, and we are happy to add that no accident occurred to mar the festivities of the occasion. My editorial career was one of continual contest. I, however, published the 160th number of the Herald of Freedom in Danbury, November 5, 1834, after which my brother-in-law, John w ammerman issued the paper for me at norfolk till the following year when the herald was sold to mr george taylor meanwhile i had taken horace fairchild into partnership in my mercantile business in eighteen thirty one and i had sold out to him and to a mr tusey in eighteen thirty three they forming a partnership under the firm of fairchild and company so far as i was concerned my store was not a success. Ordinary trade was too slow for me. I bought largely, and in order to sell, I was compelled to give extensive credits. Hence, I had an accumulation of bad debts, and my old ledger presents a long series of accounts balanced by death, by running away, by failing, and by other similarly remunerative returns. I had expended money as freely as I had gained it, for I had already learned that I could make money rapidly and in large sums when I set about it with a will, and hence I did not realize the worth of what I seemed to gain so readily. I looked forward to a future of saving when I should see the need of accumulation. There was nothing more for me to do in Bethel, and in the winter 1834-35 I removed my family to New York, where I hired a house in Hudson Street. I had no pecuniary resources, excepting such as might be derived from debts left for collection with my agent at Bethel, and I went to the metropolis literally to seek my fortune. I hoped to secure a situation in some mercantile house, not at a fixed salary, but so as to derive such portion of the profits as might be due to my individual tact, energy, and perseverance in the interests of the business but I could find no such position. My resources began to fail. My family were in ill health. I must do something for a living. And so I acted as drummer to several concerns, which allowed me a small commission on sales to customers of my introduction. Every morning I used to look at the wants in the sun for something that would suit me, and I had many a wild goose chase in following up those wants. In some instances, success depended upon my advancing from 300 to $500. In other cases, a new patent life pill or a self-acting mousetrap was to make my fortune. An advertisement announcing an immense speculation on a small capital 
$10,000 easily made in one year turned out to be an offer of Professor Somebody at Scudder's American Museum to sell a hydro-oxygen microscope, offered to me at $2,000, 1000 in cash, and the balance in 60 and 90 days on good security, and warranted to secure an independence after a short public exhibition through the country. If I had the desire to undertake this exhibition and experiment, I had not the capital. Other and many similar temptations were extended, but none of them seemed to open the door of fortune to me. The advertisement in the sun of Mr. William Niblo, of Niblo's Garden, for a barkeep first brought me in contact with that gentlemanly and justly popular proprietor. He wanted a well-recommended, well-behaved, trustworthy man to fill a vacant situation, but as he wished him to bind himself to remain three years, I, who was only seeking the means of temporary support, was precluded from accepting the position. Nor did all my efforts secure a situation for me during the whole winter, but, in the spring, I received several hundred dollars from my agent in Bethel, and finding no better business, May 1, 1835, I opened a small private boarding house at number 52 Frankfurt Street. We soon had a very good run of custom from our Connecticut acquaintances, who had occasion to visit New York, and as this business did not sufficiently occupy my time, I bought an interest with Mr. John Moody in a grocery store, number 156 South Street. Although the years of manhood brought cares, anxieties, and struggles for a livelihood, they did not change my nature, and the jocose element was still an essential ingredient of my being. I loved fun, practical fun, for itself and for the enjoyment which it brought. During the year, I occasionally visited Bridgeport, where I almost always found at the hotel a noted joker named Darrow, who spared neither friend nor foe in his tricks. He was the life of the barroom and would always try to entrap some stranger in a bet and so win a treat for the company. He made several ineffectual attempts upon me, and at last, one evening, Darrow, who stuttered, made a final trial as follows. Come, Barnum, I'll make you another proposition. I'll bet you hain't got a whole shirt on your back. The catch consists in the fact that generally only one half of that convenient garment is on the back. But I had anticipated the proposition. In fact, I had induced a friend, Mr. Huff, to put Darrow up to the trick, and had folded a shirt nicely upon my back, securing it there with my suspenders. The barroom was crowded with customers who thought that if I made the bet I should be nicely caught, and I made pretense of playing off, and at the same time stimulated Darrow to press the bet by saying, That is a foolish bet to make. I am sure my shirt is whole because it is nearly new, but I don't like to bet on such a subject. A good reason why, said Darrow, in great glee. It's ragged. Come, I'll bet you a treat for the whole company. You hain't got a whole shirt on your b b, -b back I'll bet my shirt is cleaner than yours, I replied. That's nothing to do with the case. It's ragged, and you'd you know it. I know it is not, I replied with pretended anger, which caused the crowd to laugh heartily. You poor ragged f -f -f fellow come down here from D -D Danbury. I'm sorry for you, said Darrow, tantalizingly. You would not pay if you lost, I remarked. 
here is five dollars i'll put in captain hinman's the landlord's hands now bet if you dare you ragged creature you i put five dollars in captain hinman's hands and told him to treat the company from it if i lost the bet remember said darrow i bet you hain't got a whole shirt on your back all right said i taking off my coat and commencing to unbutton my vest the whole company feeling sure that i was caught began to laugh heartily old darrow fairly danced with delight and as i laid my coat on a chair he came running up in front of me and slapping his hands together exclaimed you needn't take off any more clothes for if it ain't all on your b -b -b back you've lost it if it is i suppose you have i replied pulling the whole shirt from off my back such a shriek of laughter as burst forth from the crowd i scarcely ever heard and certainly such a blank countenance as old darrow exhibited it would be hard to conceive seeing that he was most incontinently done for and perceiving that his neighbor huff had helped to do it he ran up to him in great anger and shaking his fist in his face exclaimed ha 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 huff you infernal r -r rascal to go against your own n -n neighbor in favor of a d -d -d danbury man i'll pay you for that some time you see if i d -d -d don't all hands went up to the bar and drank with a hearty goodwill for it was seldom that darrow got taken in and he was such an inveterate joker they liked to see him paid in his own coin never till the day of his death did he hear the last of the whole shirt end of chapter four recording by nancy cochran gergen gilbert arizona